in all of human history. There's never been a single person who has affected the entire population of the world so profoundly as Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus, 12 men of average upbringing and experience, willingly at the expense of their own lives, spread the message of Christ like wildfire across the ancient world, bringing about the rapid rise of the Christian faith of which a third of the world's entire population today professes. 2,000 years after his death. Because of Jesus, Martin Luther, a 34-year-old German theology professor and devoted monk, rejected the heretical teachings of the early Roman Catholic Church, writing his 95 thesis, instead teaching that salvation and eternal life are not earned by good deeds, but are received only as the free gift of God's grace through the believer's faith in Jesus Christ. He also challenged the authority of the Pope by teaching that the Bible is the only source of divinely revealed knowledge and authority from God which promptly brought about his excommunication from the church by the Pope and his condemnation as an outlaw by the Holy Roman Emperor. Yet under the threat of his own life, often while in hiding and at times in prison, Luther translated the Bible into German, making it accessible to the masses for the first time, leading, of course, to the Protestant Reformation, changing the course of Western history forever. Because of Jesus, William Wilberforce, the 26-year-old Englishman who'd given his life to Christ just two years earlier in 1785, devoted the rest of his life to ending slavery in the British Empire because of his love for Christ and the conviction that slavery and the slave trade were antithetical to all that Jesus taught. And so in 1789, he had 12 resolutions against the slave trade introduced into Parliament. Every single one of them failed. Other bills that he introduced were defeated in 1791, 1792, 1793, 1797, 1798, 1799, 1804, and 1805. Every single one of them failed. And yet none of that stopped him from doing what Christ had called him to do. And after a lifetime of threats and persecution, he died three days after hearing that the final passage of the Emancipation Bill that would end slavery was finally assured to make it through the parliamentary process, not only ending slavery, but changing the entire moral outlook of a nation. According to historian G.M. Trevlin, this was one of the turning events in the history of the world. Because of Jesus, a 29-year-old Irish woman named Amy Carmichael moved to India in 1896, founding a mission for children, where she spent the rest of her life rescuing thousands of young girls out of prostitution. After 55 years without furlough, without taking a break, she passed away not only having transformed the lives of thousands that she saved, but just think of the lives, that, the lives that were affected by those who were rescued, the families that were formed, 
the ministries they went on to lead, the influence that they had on the culture in India for the sake of Christ, all because of the faithfulness of this one woman who loved Jesus so much that she gave her entire life away to serve others. Incidentally, it was the life and ministry of Amy Carmichael that inspired many other people to become missionaries, including Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, about whom the book and movie End of the Spear was made. Because of Jesus, Michelangelo, Da Vinci, Rembrandt, Handel, Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, on and on and on it goes. They created some of the greatest works of art and music ever known to men. Works of art and music that honor and represent Jesus Christ and his word to the world. Because of Jesus, the world's greatest universities, hospitals, schools, orphanages, and social works have been established in Europe, in America, indeed, around the world. Because of Jesus, our entire modern calendar is based on his birth. See, because of Jesus, the Holy Bible is the most published, most sold, and most read book in the world of all time. There is simply no other single person in all of history who has affected the world the way that Jesus has. The, the world famous 19th and 20th century Indian activist Mahatma Gandhi who is known in India as the father of the nation once said, I know of no one who has done more for humanity than Jesus. The 19th and 20th century American historian Will Durant said, nations have used his words as the bedrock for their governments. The 19th and 20th century Jewish rabbi Hyman Enlo wrote, Jesus has become the most popular, the most studied, the most influential figure in the religious history of mankind. In fact, more books have been written about Jesus than any other person in history. And yet as impressive as all of that is, as big of an impact that Jesus has had on the world as a whole, all of that is a result only because of the impact that he has had in the individual lives of men and women, one heart at a time. You see, Jesus can't change your world until you let him change your heart. There's no amount of faithful religious activity. There's no amount of good moral behavior. There's no amount of great social works that will ever amount to anything of eternal value whatsoever apart from Jesus. And listen, those are, those are his words, not mine. Jesus said, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit from apart from me. What can you do? You can do nothing. John 15, 5. You understand, whatever you're doing, no matter how benevolent, how compassionate, how considerate, how sacrificial, how monumental, whatever charitable endeavor you may be engaged in in your life right now, without Jesus Christ, it amounts to exactly nothing. This is one of the, the, the big philosophical questions that people often ask at some point in their lives. Why are we here? Well, I'm glad you asked because I can answer that definitively today. Because as important as social justice is, for instance, taking care of the poor and hurting and needy, the most vulnerable among us, as important and yes, necessary as that is, 
Social justice is not the primary reason you were put on this earth. As important as environmental stewardship is, right? Taking care of the planet, as noble as that may be, it is not the primary reason you are here. As important as it may seem to strive to become the absolute best version of yourself that you can become, to reach your fullest potential in life, to elevate yourself, your skills and talents and position in life, as important as that may be, that is not the primary reason you are here. As important as it is to all of us to be happy, as much as we try to fashion our lives in a way that will bring us happiness, your personal happiness is not the primary reason you were created. No, the primary reason you were put on this earth is to glorify God. That is why you are here. Isaiah 43, 7 says we were created for his glory. That is our primary purpose in this life, to glorify God. The apostle Paul said, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 6, 20, from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. Romans eleven thirty six. Your primary purpose for existing on this earth before anything else is to bring glory to God. Which means if your life right now, however you're living it, if your life is not glorifying God, then something is wrong. By the way, a life that does not bring glory to God will never bring fulfillment to you. The fact is, the most satisfied, fulfilled people I've ever met are always those who understand their purpose and then live their lives wholly dedicated to that purpose. The famous people we just talked about, Wilberforce, Luther, Carmichael, the apostles, they didn't live for their own glory. In fact, most of them had more enemies when they died than followers. They were utterly spent Bodies used up, bank accounts empty, nothing left to give, but they lived and died with a profound sense of fulfillment and purpose and satisfaction. Why? Because their lives glorified God. And listen, if yours doesn't, then something needs to change. First in your own heart, because Jesus can't change your world until you let him change your heart. So if your life is not bringing glory to God, then the posture of your heart toward him, well, that's the first thing that needs to change. It's exactly the issue, by the way, the author of Hebrews was confronting in his letter to the Jewish Christians in the first century church who had come to Christ, and yet over time, some of them had allowed their hearts to drift away from the faith until they were living for their own glory more than they were for God's. And so the author says to them, listen, don't forget what Jesus has done for you. Because of Jesus, you can be close to God now in ways that the law would never allow before. Because of Jesus, you can have hope now that, that religion could never offer you before. Because of Jesus, you can change the world around you, but he won't change your world until you let him change your heart. Because only then will your life truly 
bring glory to God. In fact, it is only because of Jesus that you have any hope of glorifying him in your life to begin with. And so the author in this last half of chapter 10 of the letter goes on to explain how to live a life that glorifies God, which is the life that every single one of us is called to live. So let's read it together and we'll see what we can learn today about living for God's glory and how living that way, if you aren't already, it will change everything in your world. We'll pick up the letter where we left off last time at chapter 10, beginning with verses 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So just a word about the, uh, the structure of this second half of chapter 10. My wife and I were talking about this. She said, you know, it's almost like one of the five paragraph essays we used to have to write in school. She's absolutely right. It's where the three main points are outlined in the introductory paragraph and then the body of the paper expounds on each one of those points with a conclusion at the end. That's almost how this second half of the letter, of the chapter in this letter is laid out uh, with the exception of the conclusion which comes in the next chapter. So as we go along here today, we're going to highlight each one of those main points in the first paragraph uh, that we're reading now, one at a time of course. And then as we do that, we'll read the corresponding text below that supports each one of those points. So a little different than we normally just read straight through. So again, he opens with, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. Okay, all of that is another way of saying, because of Jesus. Right, which then leads into verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. In other words, because of Jesus, you can draw near to God. It's the first step in living a life that glorifies him. You draw close to him. Well, great, how do you do that? How do you draw close to God? In verse 19, when he says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, that particular word confidence that was used there is actually quite rare in ancient Greek literature. It's the word parousia, which in the ancient Jewish context that it was written in here relates especially to uh, approaching God in prayer. So when he says that we have confidence to draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, he's saying we can draw near to God internally through prayer, knowing that we've been cleansed from every sin, changed from the inside out because our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And listen, this was a language uh, that was intended to resonate with a specific group of people, the Essene Hebrews of the first century to whom this letter was written, they held ritual bathing as central to their religious practice. In fact, uh, within one of the very first Qumran texts, one of the very first Dead Sea Scrolls ever to be discovered, there's a lengthy writing titled Rule of the Community, which was just what it sounds like. It was a list of religious rules 
for the Essene Hebrews to live by. And within that text, we find uh, uh, there's a tremendous emphasis on ritual bathing and numerous reoccurring references to water used for impurity. So once again, the author of the letter here is using language that would specifically connect with his audience at the time, and yet he's still able to bridge the gap from the old covenant to the new. So he says, we draw near to God internally through prayer, and then he continues, we draw near to God externally through water baptism as our bodies are washed pure with water, which we're going to witness today, of course, at the end of this service as several people are water baptized. Now look, water baptism is not only a testimony to the world of what Jesus has done for us as we are symbolically put to death with Christ, lowered into the water, buried with Christ, submerged under the water, and resurrected with Christ, raised up out of the water. It is not only the greatest testimony to the cleansing work of Christ in your life that you could ever possibly share with the world. Now it is that, but it's more than that. Water baptism is one of the physical, external means by which we draw near to God. Why? Because it is a great act of obedience to the command of his word. And yet what baffles me is the sheer volume of professing Christians in the modern church who either refuse to draw near to God in regular prayer or refuse to draw near to God in water baptism or both. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now look, we're very clearly commanded in Scripture to draw near to God through both prayer and water baptism, and yet there are scores of Christians today who refuse to either draw near to God in prayer on a regular basis or to be water baptized, and yet they claim to love Jesus. How can that be? It reminds me of... Matthew 15, 8, where Jesus said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And by the way, when he said that, he was referring to religious people who ignore the commands of God. Just read the passage before it when you have time. Now listen, we've become far too relaxed today when it comes to the holy sacraments of the church, communion and water baptism, and also when it comes to prayer, as if those means of drawing near to God are optional for the Christian. Listen to me. Let me be crystal clear. They are not optional. You cannot glorify God in your life as a Christian if you don't pray on a regular basis. You cannot because you cannot be close to God without a consistent prayer life. And likewise, you cannot glorify God in your life as a Christian if you refuse to be baptized in water because you cannot be close to God when you refuse to publicly testify to the work that he has done in your life. Yet we, we treat these primary means through which we draw near to him both internally and externally as though they're optional. We don't take them seriously today. Well, just listen to how seriously the author considered ignoring God's commands to be. Verses 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth 
there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now look, he's not talking about perfection here. This side of heaven, we all still sin at times. That is a reality of our humanity, which is one of the reasons we pray, by the way, to restore our closeness to God when we sin. He's not talking about being perfectly without sin. He's also not saying that you have to be baptized in water or pray every day in order to be saved. Right, we, we cannot perform our way to eternal life. Let's be clear on that. But he is questioning the salvation of those who profess to know the truth, those who have heard the word of God, those who have received the knowledge of the truth and yet willfully and deliberately reject that truth as if it were not truth at all by ignoring the commands of God. Can you see how serious it is when we, when we treat the commands of God lightly as if they're optional? Of course, we're still human. We still falter. We still fail. We still sin. But if you know the command of God to draw near to him through prayer and through water baptism, and yet you continually and deliberately refuse to pray or to be baptized, then your life cannot bring glory to him because you're deliberately and continually rejecting his clear command for your life. And I know that may be hard to hear, but it's okay, because there happens to be some really good news in all of this. Because of Jesus, because of the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, if your life is not glorifying God right now, all that you have to do is draw near to him through prayer. And if you haven't been baptized, then also through water baptism, and he will meet you right where you are and change your world, beginning with your very own heart. Jesus' brother James said, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you, James 4.8. That is true because of Jesus. Let's move on, back to the first paragraph, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So because of Jesus, not only can you draw near to God, but because of Jesus, you can hold fast to hope, he says. And, and he says that we can do that without wavering, which is the ancient Greek word aklanes, which literally means that which does not bend. In fact, the, uh, the first century B.C. Jewish philosopher Philo of Alexandria used the same word in his ancient writing titled Allegorical Interpretation to describe the immutability of God, the unchanging, unbending nature of God, just to, give you, uh, just to give you an idea of how strong of a word it was. So the author says that because of Jesus, because of the fact that he's proven himself 
faithful, you can hold on to the promise of his word, the confession of our hope through good times and through bad times, through plenty and through want. When everything is going right and when everything is going wrong, no matter what you're facing today, you can hold fast to the hope that you have in Christ without bending, without wavering, without losing one ounce of faith in him, for he who promised is faithful. He was actually reminding them of something they already knew because for these first century Jews to have already left their Essene community to follow Jesus in many cases, they had to give up everything that they had. And so to have come so far only now to let their faith begin to waver was unthinkable to the author of the letter. So he says, verses 32 through 36, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. In other words, don't forget what caused you to abandon your former life and to follow Christ to begin with. You believed the promises then, so why don't you believe the promises now? Because the promises haven't changed. The faithfulness of God hasn't changed. His assurance to see you through the most difficult days of your life hasn't changed. So why have you changed? Every promise that he's made, he has kept. He promised to multiply Abraham's offspring like the stars of the heavens, and he did. He promised to deliver his people from captivity in Egypt, and he did. He promised to give them a land of their own, and he did. He promised to send a savior to redeem his people, and he did. He promised to lay down his life for our sins, and he did. He promised to raise from the dead three days later, and he did. He promised to send us his spirit to live inside of us, and he did. He promised to give us everything that we need to live a life that glorifies him, and he did. If you're a Christian, and you believe all of that, why? Because of Jesus. You've been delivered from an eternity of suffering. So why is it that you have trouble now believing that he can deliver you from the temporary suffering you're going through in your life today? It's as if you've forgotten his promises, just like these first century Hebrew Christians who were struggling to hold all fast, to hold fast to their hope in Christ even after everything he'd already done for them. Listen, if you're struggling today, to hold fast to your hope in Christ because of something you're facing, something difficult that you're dealing with. You need to understand, Jesus hasn't changed. The very person who led Moses and Aaron and an entire nation of people out of Egypt across the Red Sea and through the wilderness by a cloud of smoke and a pillar of fire is the same person who has promised to lead you through your own wilderness. 
The very person who led Joshua and his armies into war, defeating the giant clans of Canaan by raining down massive hailstones on them from the sky, is the same person who has promised to fight for you in the greatest battles of your life. The very person who overcame death itself by laying down his perfect life on a Roman cross and then raising from the dead three days later is the same person who has promised to overcome the world in you. Because of Jesus, we can hold on to hope no matter what comes our way because he is as faithful to fulfill those promises today as he was back then. I just had this conversation with someone last week. The suffering, the, the trials, the hardship that we face in this life are all common to men. Right? So there's nothing wrong with you for having to experience them. Nor is there anything wrong with God for allowing you to experience them. The apostles were beaten, tortured, burned alive, nailed to crosses, boiled in oil, and stoned to death. Luther had to hide for his life. Wilberforce had to endure endless threats and persecution. Amy Carmichael was bedridden for most of the last 20 years of her life. God allowed all of that to happen to his very best men and women. Why? Because he was glorified in how they dealt with it. He was glorified in how they carried themselves through it. And he was glorified in how their lives testified about the goodness of God even while all of that suffering was happening to them. You understand there's nothing wrong with you because you suffer. We all do at times. But there's also nothing wrong with God for allowing you to suffer. His promises are as good today as they've ever been. Your response to that suffering, however, well, that is truly what matters because your response to suffering will either draw attention and glory to you or it will draw attention and glory to God. And so make no mistake, your life can glorify God even in the most difficult of your days. Why? Because of Jesus. Let's keep reading. Back to the first paragraph, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So because of Jesus, you can draw near to God. Because of Jesus, you can hold fast to hope. And he says, because of Jesus, you can stir up one another to love. Amen. Listen, this is requisite. It is required for a life that is to glorify God. And just as you cannot effectively stir up love within your earthly family if you are rarely ever with them, you cannot effectively stir up love with your spiritual family, the body of Christ either, if you're rarely ever with them. So the author says, don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. Again, it has become uh, somewhat in vogue today to believe that you can live a life that glorifies God without participating in the lifeblood of the local church. And I'm telling you, if that's your conviction, I'm sorry to disappoint you, and I've said it many times before, but you cannot have a high view of Christ and a low view of the church. 
Those two positions are scripturally irreconcilable. Jesus and his apostles established, served, lived for, and died for the church. And yet I hear people who think they know better trying to differentiate between what they call organized religion and true Christianity. Well, again, I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but Christianity is an organized religion. First of all, there was nothing disorganized about the church in the New Testament. They had pastors, they had evangelists, they had teachers, they had prophets, they had apostles, and they had deacons, all with specific rules for service and leadership. They met in homes, they met in synagogues, in at least one city they met in a school. They had organized systems for giving and distributing funds. They had programs to minister for the poor and needy, to support their missionaries and even other local churches. They sang songs and hymns together. They had organized times of prayer and teaching. They had regular and consistent times of fellowship. They planned meals together. It it almost sounds like an organized church because that's what it was. So don't shrink back from the church and then pretend that somehow your life is bringing glory to God because your life cannot glorify God outside of being an active part of the local church. That's why the author says don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day of what drawing near? Well, let's read it, verse 37. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. I, uh, look, I understand the church may not be all that you want it to be. Newsflash. <laughs> the church is made up of broken, hurting sinful people who have been redeemed by the grace of God, not by our own righteousness, but because of His, because of Jesus. So anytime you put a bunch of broken, hurting, sinful people together, you're going to have a lot of imperfections, pastor included. But just because it isn't perfect doesn't mean you're justified in shrinking back from it. And so as the day of Christ draws near, he says, don't allow yourself to shrink back from God. Don't allow yourself to shrink back from the hope that you have in him. And do not allow yourself to shrink back from his church because you cannot live a life that glorifies God while you're shrinking back from the life that he has called you to live. Listen, you, you know, you know whether or not your life is glorifying God right now. You don't need me or anyone else to tell you that because you know it better than anyone else does. The good news is, if your life is not glorifying God right now, if the way you're living, the way you're giving, the relationships and activities you're focused on, your involvement or lack of with this church, the way you represent him to the world, even in the most difficult times of your life, your relationship with him itself, if your life in any way is not glorifying God right now, there's good news for you. Because of Jesus, you see, because of 
of him, you can do something about it. In fact, he can change your life. He can change your whole world. But it starts in your own heart. Because Jesus, he won't change your world until you let him change your heart. Okay, if your life as a professing Christian is not bringing glory to God because you're not obeying his most basic commands to pray, to seek him, to study his word, to participate in the sacraments of the church, it isn't God's heart that needs to change. It's your heart that needs to change. If your life is not bringing glory to God, even in the midst of whatever difficulty you may be facing right now, even if it's the greatest struggle of your life, it isn't God's promise to see you through that trouble that needs to change. It's your heart that needs to change. If your life as a member of the body of Christ, his church, if it's not bringing glory to God because you refuse to participate in the ministry of the body or you refuse to engage with his people or you refuse to give to his work, listen, it isn't the church that needs to change. It's your heart that needs to change. And listen, it can change no matter how far you've strayed from him, no matter how hopeless you feel in your struggles, no matter how disconnected from his people you may have become, your heart can change. In fact, your whole world can change because of Jesus. The question is, will you let him make that change in you? Let's pray.